0: In America and the UK, one out of every two men and one of every three women will develop cancer in their lifetimes. How did a disease that was once so atypical become so ordinary? Welcome to the ReachMD Book Club. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, Director of Foothill Psychiatry in Boise, Idaho, your host. And with me today is Dr. Deborah Davis. Dr. Davis heads up the country's first Center for Environmental Oncology, at the University of Pittsburgh Cancer Institute. Honored for her research and public policy work by various national and international groups, Dr. Davis is Professor of Epidemiology at the University of Pittsburgh Graduate School of Public Health and an expert advisor to the World Health Organization. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. Davis. Thank you very much. Dr. Davis, let's talk about the proliferation of so-called routine x-ray studies.
1: Well, we're very concerned about this. In fact, just this past week in the Annals of Emergency Medicine, there's an article by Dr. Jim Winslow of Wake Forest University in North Carolina. The average person in the U.S. receives about 3 millisieverts of background radiation every year just from the sun, just from being alive, and we spend some time outdoors. But trauma patients in ERs can get an average of 40 millisieverts. Okay, that's more than 10 times background radiation from a single visit. And this article analyzed the records of patients who came to the ER level one trauma center over three months and found that the average patient got enough radiation to give them a lifetime increased risk of cancer. Now, here's the tricky part. In multi-trauma, patients, of course, are at high risk of life-threatening injuries, and that justifies very aggressive testing. If you have an unconscious person with a head bleed, you're going to do a CAT scan of the head. But the concern is that there's repeated use of diagnostic radiations in circumstances that are not emergencies or even that in emergencies, once you first determine a bleed, for example, that there are follow-up procedures that can be done that do not convey continued risk of radiation. And we're so concerned about this now because children are particularly at the highest risk because, of course, it's a lifetime of exposure we want to, to deal with.
0: Well, it's timely for me. I just went to the dentist this morning, and of course they wanted to take a quote-unquote routine x-rays because it's been a year since I've had them. And, you know, being asymptomatic, it seems completely ridiculous to me to take films just because the calendar says we should. What did you do? Um, I said, no, thank you.
1: (laughs) I think that's a good idea. I think if you're a healthy person without any symptoms, that generally x-rays should be avoided. A baseline X-ray, whether it's for a mammogram or a dental X-ray, is appropriate. But modern America is completely overusing diagnostic radiation today, and most of our diagnostic radiation exposure, by the way, is coming from CT scans. We've had a tenfold increase in the use of CT scans in the past decade.
0: You know, from a physician point of view, it seems like so much of this is driven by litigation concerns. That... Well,
1: there's no question that defensive medicine is part of it. There's also, I think, our intoxication with, with technology. And I think most pediatricians and ER docs have no idea that a single CT scan of a baby, a CT scan of the head of a baby, can be between 200 to 6,000 chest x-rays. Now, one scan may be needed, again, if you've got an unconscious kid with a bleed, but repeated scans, sometimes four or five a day, to follow a subdural hematoma are completely inappropriate. Mm-hmm. The American College of Radiology and the Pediatric Radiology Associations are all warning about this now. And one group of Yale researchers looked at the current patterns and they figured that we're already increasing future radiation-related cancers because of CTE patterns, and Brenner and Hall had an article in the New England Journal of Medicine warning about this.
0: Well, certainly you've talked about how cases example in the ER where from a clinical presentation and a physical exam that it's clearly appendicitis, but they get a CT just in case, and it turns out to be not looking like appendicitis, and, and then what do you do?
1: Well, that's what CT scans have, have really changed the world of surgery. You avoid surgery, you know better what you're doing. But for appendicitis, often an ultrasound can be just as useful with less radiation. And, you know, there are a lot of docs who think that we're overdoing the scans in general. Obviously, I'm not a surgeon or physician, and so I'm not going to weigh in on something like that. But there's a general agreement in the radiology community that we're overusing CT scans in non-emergency situations. Appendicitis is an emergency. But it doesn't need to be used in situations where you're monitoring people for chronic illness. And that is something that has been going on now.
0: So it sounds like your advice, bottom line, is that we appreciate the magnitude of the exposure from each scan and use it when it's really appropriate, not just because we think it might be helpful.
1: I think that's well said. And we're working on something at the University of Pittsburgh as well. There is no routine recording on medical records of total body diagnostic radiation. Now, if you're a Mm radiologist, a technologist, you're wearing a badge. Patients don't wear badges, and there's no record of their routine exposure. It's something we need to really rethink because we do understand that, especially as people are living longer, we're going to be creating uh, future cancer risks.
0: Right, and with EMR, electronic medical records, it seems like that would be easy to build into the system, just keep a running tally. That's
1: right, and that's something that we're going to be talking about at the University of Pittsburgh with a number of experts in the field.
0: Let's switch gears here for a minute and talk about cell phones. This is another area that's been quite controversial. And again, what disturbs me most about the whole cell phone question is how the consumer target for the cell phone industry has gotten younger and younger, and now they're targeting elementary age. Yeah, I'm
1: very, very concerned about that. So what do we know? Well, what we know is this. We don't have definitive information on their safety or their dangers because they're too newly used. And we are concerned about brain cancer, but brain cancer accepting in children is thought to have a latency between 10 to 30 years. So how could we possibly know whether or not these things are going to be causing brain tumors? And the studies that have been negative so far are hardly the last word. Let me just give you an example of one that was published by researchers from the Danish Cancer Society. They said there was no evidence of risk in persons who had used cell phones. Well, what was the group that they studied? Less than a half million people who had used cell phones between 1982 and 1995, okay? Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think I used a cell phone then at all, okay? (laughs) And a user was defined as anyone who made a single phone call, one phone call for six months during the period, and they kicked anyone out of the study who'd been a business user. So guess what? They didn't find any risk. And they stopped collecting information on tumors in 2002. Well, when you're looking at a large population to find an effect, generally the more people you study, the better your chance of finding something. But if you want to take a large number of people who have almost no exposure and then combine them with a small number of people who have high exposures, you're going to dilute the chance of finding anything at all. It's sort of like if you're looking all over the city for a stolen car, but you really know it's in a five-block radius. If you're going to look all over the city, the chances of you're finding it in a five-block radius are not too great. So that's pretty much what happened there. And I think it's really important for us to understand this. The cell signal is a microwave signal. It penetrates the brain. That's something the cell companies will tell you if you look and dig into the information on the cell phone. Just yesterday, a new study was done on cell phone signals and uh, the ability to interfere with the growth of breast cancer cells. There are many, many such studies out there on the ability of cell signals to have effects on living cells, and there's a really good report on this called the Bioinitiatives Report, bioinitiatives.org, that reviews more than 600 different studies. An international group put it together. So I can't tell you that cell phones are dangerous, and I can't tell you that they're safe. What I recommend is that you use a cell phone with a hollow-tubed earpiece or a speakerphone. And I can tell you this, the governments of England and Germany and Bangalore, India, do not recommend cell phones be used at all by children.
0: If you've just tuned in, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Deborah Davis the author of more than 170 scientific publications and the editor of 11 books. We are discussing her latest work, The Secret History of the War on Cancer. Now, Dr. Davis, another thing that's concerning to me about cell phones is it seems like men especially wear them, you know, what, 18 hours a day on their belt. Do we know anything about that?
1: Well, there's some indication that wearing it right at the area where the marrow is produced, at the hip, Right. Is not a good idea. And again, if you look at the recommendations that other governments have made on this issue, and these are government recommendations from Germany and England, you'll see they advise against constantly having them on and on your body. And again, I'm extremely concerned about young children having these parties where eight or nine of them are all hooked up one or another on their cell phones and talking for hours at a time. Mm -hmm. We simply do not know that this is a good thing, and I think we're conducting an experiment on our children and ourselves and the results of which may never become fully apparent in terms of our ability to get data in human populations, because right now, more than half the nation is a cell phone user. How are we going to find a control group? Where are we going to find people to compare things to without exposures? It's really become an impossible problem. I'm betting on the electrical engineers to continue to design phones with lower and lower exposures. But it's not just cell phones we have to be concerned about, unfortunately. There are other forms of wireless technologies. And at this point, we know that this saves lives. It would be an irony if we find out that it also costs lives later on.
0: I was concerned when school started last fall, my 10-year-old daughter insisted that everyone in her fifth grade class had a cell phone except for poor, pitiful her. So our first teacher conference, I just asked the teacher, because of course I thought she was embellishing things a bit. So I asked the teacher, so is it true that really all the kids in this class have cell phones except for my poor, pitiful daughter? And she said, well, actually, yes. (laughs) So it is, it's terrifying. Now, what do you see as the most underappreciated potential causes of cancer that we have today?
1: Well, in certain areas of the country, radon is clearly a problem. In areas of Idaho, arsenic is still a problem. Mm -hmm. We have problems in our drinking water that we haven't been measuring or paying attention to. Radon is an invisible radioactive gas that is released from deep within the earth, and it clearly can increase the risk of lung cancer. And as, finally, fewer people are smoking in many areas, the role of radon in inducing lung cancer is going to grow, and the advantage is that radon can be remediated fairly easily because it comes into the basement, it can be outgassed, and really it is a situation where dispersal of it can substantially reduce the risk of exposure as a result. Drinking water is something that we have not been monitoring adequately, and just today the AP Wire had a story confirming the U.S. Geological Survey has been documenting for years that there are certain pharmaceuticals, widely used pain medications and birth control pills, that are showing up in finished drinking water.
0: Well, thank you so much for enlightening us today. Thank you. We've been speaking with Dr. Devra Davis, the author of The Secret History of the War on Cancer. I'm Dr. Leslie Lent. You've been listening to the ReachMD Book Club on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments. So please visit us at reachmd.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening.